Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a founder, actually, an entrepreneur that uh, definitely, you know, on the operational side, you know, he's going to teach us a thing or two, especially about Zooming, you know, nowadays. And then also how he has gone about building and scaling his company, going over 100 pitches when trying to secure his own Series A. And I find that uh, you're all going to be very, very inspired with what our guest is going to be sharing today. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alex Ivoder. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Very pleased to be here. So, originally born in Nice, and uh, as they say, the product of uh, the French Republic. So, what does that mean? Well, yes, I'm, I'm French, uh, and my parents are not uh, from France. I don't have a French DNA. They are immigrants from a country that doesn't exist anymore, Yugoslavia. So, uh, being born in France, I was raised by the French uh, system and my parents, of course, and I made all the way through to today. We can talk about that, of course, in more, in more details. But uh, France is, uh, like the U.S., a great melting pot, taking all everyone coming in the country and doing something unique out of that. That's beautiful, and it's one of the rare countries that can do that really well. And in your case, I mean, obviously, you you really were born with seeing the 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 good, the bad, and the ugly of entrepreneurship because your parents, you know, were in it. So, so what did you learn from that? And 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 I guess that was probably the seed that was planted for you. Probably, yeah. My, my father was uh, was an entrepreneur. He he had a small business in the construction industry, which is a which is a difficult industry. It has a lot of ups and downs uh, and uh, problems that you have to deal with. So he had to be resilient, right? And that's one of the first things I learned: resilience. Second, I learned from him is uh, willpower. Uh, anything that you really want to do you can do it if you really want to do it, right? It's all about how committed are you to whatever is on your is in your mind and then go after it. So these are two things that are absolutely, I think, uh, incredibly useful for any entrepreneur because you will need both full power and resilience, for sure. And in your case, you studied economics uh, and then you actually uh, did a statistics. So it was kind of like a switch from going from Nice to Paris. But why statistics out of all things? Well, I think I, I discovered actually when I was in my uh, early 20s that I had a love for like uh, logic systems, numbers, uh, quantification in general. 
So I was in economics, but I branched out to, to statistics because I'm basically an engineer. And that's something I discovered probably a bit too late in my life. But uh, being an engineer uh, and thinking of the world as input-output systems and stuff you control and you can tweak to improve, etc. that's my mind, uh, I found that in statistics, you can actually, you find all that, right? In statistics, statistics is not just a, a bunch of numbers. Now, statistics is really understanding these numbers and getting insights, uh, creating, generating insights out of that, which is, which is quite tough. So uh, that's how I transitioned from economics to statistics. But I actually came back to economics uh, when I was working uh, later in my life. I was, uh, started, uh, started working when I was in my 20s. Uh, whilst I was working, I also did a PhD in economics, right? To be crazy, I was. So basically, uh, I still love a lot this, this discipline. Uh, yep. And then you travel quite a bit from, you know, around there, Europe. So what were you doing, you know, when, when you were working on, on all these projects? Yeah, so so I traveled a lot in my twenties and thirties. I traveled all across uh, the European Union, and then I went eastwards. I traveled all the European Eastern countries, the former Soviet Union. Like I cannot I don't know how many thousands of nights I have done, but basically, um, I had for about uh, roughly eight ten years. I was um, helping um, first the European countries, and then these countries. Uh, in the area of statistics, official statistics. So it was it was more like a policy job, it's a policy and diplomacy, and helping the former Soviet Union countries transition towards European standards. So a lot of what we call technical assistance, training, and this kind this kind of stuff. And then after that journey, you went into business, and uh, you know essentially, you know obviously you did multiple companies before landing on the company that you have uh, that you're operating today. Go Henry, uh, but you know, as part of as part of this process of 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 really now being an operator and and building you know Henry up, you know, I find that you know you've probably learned a lot you know during these experiences uh, when you were either launching products or ramping up you know certain things or helping on the integrations uh, of different of different companies. Uh, but what I want to do here is because you have obviously multiple experiences, and I like to kind of like really go you know, as fast as possible into your experience with Henry, because our listeners are really going to enjoy that. But out of all these experiences, you know, on the professional side leading to Henry, I'd like to ask you, you know, what was your role? What was and what was your main takeaway, you know, uh, during those experiences? So let's, so let's start with the first one. We tell it to what was your role and yeah. what was your big takeaway? So uh, Tele2, a great, great company, uh, part of a Swedish group called Schinevik. And actually, we, we had a word for, 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 these, for these experiences as, as a first starter. It's the Schinevik Academy. I don't have an MBA, so basically I learned business there. And uh, my first and, and the one thing I will remember from Tele2 is the importance of sales and marketing. This was a phenomenal sales machine. I think I've not found better. Actually, a lot of the stuff I'm doing today are still inspired by these days, where basically it was keep it simple, go straight, go straight explain as simple as possible to the largest possible base of, of prospects what you are doing, why you exist on, on the planet, why is it better to go with you? Yeah, that's like super simple. But you know, always, it's always the same. Simple things work very well when they are scaled and you know what to do. Uh, so that's what I learned. Then I moved to um, Expedia. I was I launched Expedia in France back in 2006. And then I, I took over the four European countries of, of Expedia. So that was here I learned e-commerce. It was the beginning of uh, 
Google paid search, etc. So this is where I learned, I learned all this new stuff. Uh, then I moved to a company called Viagogo, which is a secondary ticket exchange. Uh, there I was the, the number two to, to the founder, Eric Baker. And here that was four or five years of huge scaling. Uh, if I just give you one number, we went from, when I joined, we were in one market, the UK, when I left, we were in 52 markets on five continents. So that, that's basically a product scaling, uh, huge digital marketing scaling as well. And then after a break of six months, I was uh, I joined a company called Linda.com uh, as a VP EMEA. Uh, Linda is uh, an online learning platform. And uh, I was there basically to help them build uh, international, starting with Europe, which was the, the strongest part of international. And uh, after 18 months of doing that, uh, the company was acquired by uh, uh, LinkedIn uh, back in May 2015 for $1.5 billion. That was the, one of the largest sales in this space. And uh, I left on the day of the close of the company together with uh, the founders and the whole C-suite in the U.S. And obviously that uh, led you into into what you're doing now, you know, which is really, yes, so, you know, so being then... the operator of, of your baby, right? So go go Henry. That, that was first of all the, the approach was interesting. How did I get to learn about Go Henry? And the moment it happened was really interesting. Um, I still remember the the day. So it was in May 2015, uh, a few days actually after I had left, left Linda, and uh, I was in the kitchen uh, pinning on the on the whiteboard of my kitchen uh, the list of chores for my second daughter uh, Catherine, and uh, as I was pinning this like which I have put in Excel, you know, printed on paper, etc. Which uh, you do this, do that, and you get you get some rewards. As I was pinning this, I get the call from uh, from the headhunter who talks to me about uh, Go Henry. And actually, I realize on the call I'm here with my like <laughs> my right hand is I'm, I'm looking at my own chart, and then she's telling me that actually there is this app that does basically what I'm doing here in Excel. <laughs> so it's all built in. As oh, I said. Hold on a second. That's interesting. So there is an app that does what I'm doing now manually. Oh, let's look at that. So basically, I started being very, I was, I was very interested by this. And I was also um, kind of at the same time uh, extremely attracted and also afraid of the idea. Because, you know, as a parent of two, uh, you, you understand that, I mean, there is nothing more precious than your children on this planet. Yeah. Nothing. And so when you want to build a business that not only is dealing with your children, but with your money, I was saying, wow, that's like, <laughs> this is a challenge. And because I like challenges, I'm always like the, the type of person who goes after the unusual idea and, and like challenging the, the common sense. I said, let's dig into that. So basically I started digging, then I invested in the company, and then I became the, the CEO, and then I continued investing, et cetera, so then we can talk about it. Because when when you join, I mean, how many? I mean, you're you're not the typical founder. You're like a refounder, which is the one that goes in, you know, and really build things up, you know, from from a very early stage. I mean, I've seen this multiple times. So so in this case, when you join, how many how many people were in the business? I think we were about fifteen or twenty, something like that, uh, and we had probably thirty thousand customers. Uh, what we had, what I found, was a company that had built a, a great product. Uh, Richard Jones, who was my uh, predecessor to, to the CEO role and who is my CPO today, Richard had built something unique, something that didn't exist at the time. You have to remember back in 20, 2015, huh? when he they did the app back in 2013, 14, 
there was not much example to look around. There was simple in the US, which had been sold to uh, BBVA. That's yeah. it, right? And so basically, he actually created from nothing the app, which then was copied, or he, he was the source of inspiration for quite a few other apps in this space. So that kudos to him on that. And uh, I found a company that also had just beginning to find its feet on one marketing channel, which was Facebook. That's it. And so basically, uh, well, coming in, the first concern was, guess what? Cash. <laughs> fundraising. And uh, okay, then we started uh, fundra- uh, started fundraising for, for, for the company. That was one of many fundraisers. And the second thing that, that, was, that had to be solved was a, a word that did not exist in the vocabulary of the company when I joined, which was unit economics. Right. So the company was product driven, has had some marketing, but no unit economics. And the problem is that if you don't have unit economics uh, figured out, you cannot scale, or it will cost you an enormous amount of money to scale. And so we had to figure these two things during the first uh, few months: unit economics and fundraising. And in this case, so that the people that that are listening and watching, you know, get it, what what ended up being the business model that we know of Go Henry today? Yeah, so that's another, it's a good question. Uh, GoHenry innovated on that front because GoHenry was, uh, I, I, I believe, probably the first, I mean, I've not done a, a historical research, but I would say probably the first card that was coming with a subscription. So the, the, uh, the, 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 the co-founders of the company had this idea that rather than giving um, a card to children, uh, that would be charged each time they use the card. And that was the model that was prevalent at the time. They said, can we make it simple and go the, the Netflix or the basically Spotify way and create a, a subscription? And so they created the subscription for a card. That was an innovation which, to be honest, uh, if I would have to bet at the time what would be the success of that, I would have put it not very high. right? But it worked. Uh, it's the, again back to simplicity. I said earlier about Tele2. It's simple. That's why it works. <laughs> and and of course it was at the forefront. And then it was copied today. Many 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 fintechs do that, uh, but in in the B two C space. But then it was an innovation. So uh, the 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 trick about the unit economics of a subscription subscription model, which is basically you you charge a recurring fee for a service. In our case, a financial education service, is you have to find the right balance between. Basically, is the revenue stream that you get every month from, from, from the subscription fee and the cost to acquire your customers, right? It's called the unit economics formula. So the thing has to match so that whatever you invest to acquire a customer, there is a payback time. That payback time has to be for you and your shareholders comfortable, not uh, five years, right? More like one year. And so that's the hill we had to go down <laughs> when, uh, when, when I joined them. We, we figured it out with, with the team. It was, it was a great, uh, great few months of fun and hard, hard, hard work about getting that down the unit economics. But once you get there, so once you get to a point for our case, which was like one and a half year of payback time, then we can start scaling, right? Um, but it's important. To, to, to so, so when you joined, obviously, I mean, there were still the very early stages. You know, how, how much capital has had, had been raised uh, at the point where you were joining? Oh, you asked me a question here. Uh, probably no more than 10 million pounds. Uh, I would say probably even less. Uh, maybe, maybe six or seven. Uh, I, sh- I should go back and look at this. Uh, but but I mean, what I mean, we in, did in this, in this sense for you guys, I mean, when you joined, it was pretty much like Series A cycle, Series A financing cycle, and or where, where were you guys there? 
so yeah so uh yeah we didn't give uh letters to our fundraisers until our last our first institutional raise which was last year it was series a but it was a large series a so yeah. what we did between basically uh let's say if i look at my my joining in 2015 and 2020 was a succession of uh, fundraisers First, when I joined, of course, I, I came with uh, my family and my friends, and they contributed to, to, to the fundraisers. But then we, of course, you get to the limits very quickly on our network. Then we tried something which for us was a total novelty. Um, and we looked at this, it, it's called crowdfunding. We looked at this as, okay, let's, let's see whether this can ensure Right, so whether we can top up, if you want, uh, from our known sources, if we can top up a bit with the crowd, that would be good. So basically, we 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 tried with Crowdcube uh, this uh, first uh, fundraise, and I have to say we were flabbergasted by the results. So uh, we we did the campaign in in uh, probably because yeah we are a B two C company and the product is easy to understand. We basically wanted our customers to be involved and give, we wanted to give them a chance. So we basically opened the campaign for the weekend exclusively to our small customer base. I think it was 60,000 customers at the time. And uh, they could invest uh, from any amount, starting from 10 pounds. Uh, and uh, let's see. Well, basically, we were looking for 2 million pounds. We got the 2 million pounds over the weekend, which like, that was like, for me, that was really news. Uh, so much so that when we came on Monday morning, uh, opened the, the extended, if you want, the round to anyone on Crowdcube, one of the first questions we got on the forum was, okay, guys, you already have your, your money. Are you keeping it up or are you closing it? And so basically we, we left it and we, we said, we asked Crowdcube, what's the maximum you can raise? And at the time, the maximum was £4 million. That was the, it's the EU regulation limit on how much you can raise from the crowd. And we hit that this £4 million. And it, it was back in the days, the largest uh, fundraise done by a company uh, getting money from the crowd, pure equity, right? Worldwide. Yeah. Um, and that was quite, quite astonishing. And then we did it again uh, in 2018, where we raised 18 million pounds. But let me tell you something else which was even more uh, astonishing was the following. Before we did the crowdfunding, we went to our customer base and we asked, we told them, uh, without giving them any detail, there was no deck, nothing. It was just a simple survey with two questions. We asked them, we said, we are thinking of doing a crowdfunding. And we said, okay, crowdfunding is basically anyone can participate, right? Uh, and you become a shareholder. Would you, as a customer, uh, we would like to give access to our customers. Would you invest? Uh, and if you would invest, tell us, please, how much? And we gave them a range from £10 to £100,000. And then uh, we also put a, a box, which was a free text, saying, if you don't want or if you do want to invest, please write something. So we get replies about, uh, from memory, I think uh, 3,000 replies to the survey. And uh, when we analyze, 80% of the people said yes, they would like to participate, which was a good sign. And then I started digging into the 20% who said no, that they replied no, they want to. And I said, why? So I looked into the whys. And then we started reading the box of whys. And guess what? 30% of the 20 who said no basically said something along the following lines. If I had 10 pounds to invest, I would. So that, I mean, I paused. I said, hold on a second. So these parents 
are paying us today a membership fee, which in the days back in the day was one ninety seven or two forty nine, right? So basically like two 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 pounds fifty, and they they say that they cannot find ten pounds to become a shareholder. So that that to me was like a massive news because I thought and everyone in the company thought that this product was a middle class product, uh, upper middle class. Actually, no. We discovered here that it, it's it's anyone who, as a parent, wants to have their children become financially literate, wants to be a customer. That was for us a very big news. And that all of a sudden opened up like the total addressable market to <laughs> much wider. Like we realized with this, this is much bigger than we thought, even initially, the founders, than we thought. And that was great. I mean, that was, I still have goosebumps when I talk about that. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I'm sure that the uh, transition from from getting money from the crowds to getting money to from the sophisticated investors was quite a big transition because unfortunately right now, you know, nowadays, you know, investors tend to look at online platforms as, as adverse selection. You know, they think of, you know, like maybe, you know, companies are launching there because they couldn't find the money on the traditional sources. You know, obviously in this case, you know, you guys have your own journey and there's always exceptions, but did you find, you know, challenging that transition from going to the crowds to going to the sophisticated players? Yes, I would say yes and no. Uh, so it depends on which way you look at it. Uh, you know, you never know when you have good luck. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. And that's one of these stories. So between 2015 and 2020, I have seen, I have a list, but it's probably 150 plus funds. I, I, I stopped counting at some stage. And there were a lot of no's, a lot of no replies, uh, a lot of yes, maybe, a lot of come back later with higher numbers. I mean, like a lot of like later, right? We did have a few conversations that were like uh, ended up in a term sheet that we in the end turned down because the partners was not the right one or the term sheet was not good enough. But the most difficult in this in this uh, in this like journey to to the series A was really believing in your idea. Because we, on one side, receive this huge amount of support from our customers. Like the referral rate is incredible. Five stars everywhere. That customers writing to us when their kids get 18, because our, our product is offered for kids, who, parents with children aged 6 to 18, right? So when the, when the child or when the teenager actually gets to the age or when it's the end of the journey, can you imagine that parents are writing to us an email to say thank you? Thank you for having been our uh, financial educator, supplier of great service during these six, three years, uh, five years, whatever. I mean, which bank receive a, receive a mail from a customer or saying thank you? It doesn't exist, right? So yeah. on one side, you have this like huge love from your community. And on the other, when you, when you, when you like, switch on the other side, you have the, I would call that at large, the VC community that struggles. Right, it struggles with a few things. Struggles with the fact that okay, but this is a space where uh, it's uh, it, you are dealing with children. Mm, well, yeah, okay. We for some reason some of them don't like. Then you are dealing with um, uh, short cohorts, right? We talk about, as I said, our our lifetime is typically six, seven years, right? So uh, we would like to have it longer. Then you are dealing with uh, some funds who don't want to have uh, an LTV to CAC or X. They prefer to have it double X. Uh, some want to have a higher growth. So for various reasons, right? Then uh, then the story became even more complicated. 
after we launched the US in 2018-19, because then all of a sudden we, we thought it would be easier because like we are going to the US, it's the biggest market on, on the planet, etc. Actually, maybe we made it more difficult for us because uh, quite a few founders were saying, oh, no, 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 this is too risky. <laughs> We've seen many companies from the UK sink in the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah. So we don't want to take that risk, right? So, so basically for all these reasons, like we, we, we had troubles. And then I would say the change was uh, COVID-19, which is quite interesting. How come that such a dramatic moment in the history of humanity leads to something positive to our company? Well, uh, this is the, the interesting thing. In March, April, so after we had seen all these funds in Europe, I was telling Dean, my, uh, one of our co-founders in, uh, who, who is in, in the US, he's in charge of the US, I said, listen, Dean, we stopped talking to European funds. Now I just want to talk to American funds because the European, I know them, uh, okay, gone through that. Okay, let's, let's change. So basically, actually, when we crossed the Atlantic and we went to the US funds and we only did the US-oriented uh, fundraising campaign, this is where we found some interest. In the middle of COVID-19, we started the campaign in April 2020, right? Right in the middle. And uh, probably because we were resilient, so our business was actually growing very well during COVID, like product was, uh, engagement was increasing, et cetera. Maybe that plus the fact that American businesses, American VCs are more open to risk, right? Uh, less conservative. We, we found uh, quite a few funds and then we, we selected the Edison Partner as our lead investor. Nice. So then in total, how much money has GoHenry raised to date? So about $70 million between 30 million uh, friends, family, the crowd, and 40 from uh, the Series A round with uh, Cit- so, uh, uh, Edison Partners, uh, City Ventures, and uh, Gaia Capital Partners, uh, a French fund. So yeah, 70 million. A 40 million Series A. My God, that sounds more like a Series B, you know, Series C type of uh, type of round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it is. Uh, that's why I say it's a bit uh, back to your first question. Uh, you don't know when you have good luck. I have to say that our story of capital formation, which is a bit strange, actually might be our strongest asset because it had it has ingrained in us like like we have to build a product for our community, for ourselves. We are all parents, right? So we really are product focused, product centric, but we are not. Um, we we are also very mindful of the PNL, and we are very mindful of the unit economics. So basically, this tension that we had between the amount of money we had on the bank account and what we wanted to achieve for our customers was always present, and we always managed the growth having in mind these two things. Product and brand on one side, right? Because you cannot succeed building any business, but in particular B2C business, if you cannot build trust, right? Otherwise, forget about it. So yeah. trust and then uh, shareholder value and, uh, and unit economics, these two things together have helped us grow a business that is what it is today. And now we are ready to scale uh, with the, the Series A uh, money uh, much, much faster, much bigger into, into the UK and especially into the US. And how big is uh, GoHenry today? Anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else? Yeah, in terms of number of employees, we are getting close to uh, 200 approximately now. I think from memory, uh, roughly 140 of them are uh, 
engineers, marketeers, uh, the like, and uh, 60 are uh, customer service agents. So we have our own customer service team uh, in-house to, to serve both the UK and the US from, from the UK. That's, that's the size. Uh, we have one and a half million customers uh, worldwide uh, between the, the UK uh, and, the, and, the, and the US. That's amazing. So imagine that I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment where you actually made the decision of jumping you know, on board to, to take the reins here at Go Henry. And you had the opportunity of giving yourself one piece of business advice before really you know, taking on Go Henry. What would you tell that younger self and why, given what you know now? It's always uh, difficult to, and it's always biased to look at hindsight, right? Always, because yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not the way life is, is, is built. Uh, life is the life of the moment, right? You want to survive another day. Right. But I would say probably, even though I am already by nature someone who is really action-oriented, I would probably have told myself, just do it. Uh, life is life is short. Uh, don't wait. There is never a good time. There is all. There will always be obstacles, right? So change your perspective so that you you transform the obstacle in front of you as a way to progress in your life. Uh, uh, there, there is a very interesting. Uh, um, I think it's the title of a book, by the way, from from a guy called Ryan Holiday, uh, who is uh, who is uh, working uh, writing a lot about Stoics. He has this very interesting uh, sentence. He said. The obstacle is not in your way. The obstacle is the way, right? So actually, you have to use the obstacle as a way to progress, right? And that struggle to actually accept that tension that what is in front of you actually is what, what you have to, that what has to help you go to the next stage is, I think, uh, an advice. I'm trying to practice that advice every day, but I always, like, sometimes I... I catch myself forgetting, forgetting about it. So I would definitely remind myself of that, right? There are a few instances where I would have liked to, to not uh, equivocate, not think too much, uh, not uh, overanalyze and just do it. That's amazing. And uh, Alex, for the people that are listening and watching, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, the best way is, I'm not, uh, I'm not big on uh, social media. So the best way is that you find me on LinkedIn uh, or you type uh, CEO Go Henry and you will find me. Uh, then from there, you can probably get to, to LinkedIn. And I'm, of course, uh, uh, happy to, 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 to have short conversations with, with people who are interested to, to build their businesses. I mean, I probably I can, I think I have a very eclectic experience, uh, which could serve to many different instances. Uh, and so I'm happy to help if I can. Amazing. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Alejandro, for giving me this opportunity. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.